0: Hi, this is Jeff Curto, Professor of Photography at College of DuPage in Glen Ellyn, Illinois, and welcome to a special field trip session for History of Photography, Photo 1105. Each semester, I take a small, I guess, volunteer group of students. It's an optional field trip for them to come to the Art Institute of Chicago Photography Study Room. Uh, this particular session happened this year on the 13th of uh, March, Friday the 13th, And just before St. Patrick's Day here in Chicago, where we dye the fountains green uh, because of Chicago's Irish population. And uh, the uh, photography galleries at the Art Institute of Chicago has uh, currently on exhibition an exhibition of 100 photographs by Josef Karsh, some extraordinary prints and some photographs of, of some extraordinary individuals. But our primary function in uh, heading to the Art Institute of Chicago on Friday the 13th of March was, in fact, to go to the study facility, the photography study facility right in the middle of the photography galleries at the Art Institute of Chicago is a remarkable facility, a remarkable uh, place to look at photographs. And there we were able to look at a large number of images, not in frames, not behind glass, and really get to know what the quality of these images is like. So here we are joining our small class group uh, in the photography study facility at the Art Institute of Chicago on Friday, the 13th of March, 2009. And uh, a little bit of time talking about the idea of pictorial syntax, pictorial syntax. And uh, just to kind of give you a sense of this idea of how meaning happens. and maybe to give you some tools about thinking about how meaning happens, and also to give you some tools to kind of look at these photographs in a certain way. Uh, for in, a, in a certain way with a certain sense of perspective. And, of course, one of the reasons we have a course like this in the photography department is not only to, you know, sort of learn a little bit about the history of the medium, but also to learn a little bit about where we are in the history of the medium and about what to look for when we look at things and how to kind of contemplate what we see when we see it. So um, when I uh, contact Newell to ask her about, you know, bringing a class group here. Uh, one of the things that I do is, and in fact, she's got the Jeff list now, uh, so uh, so she knows kind of what I'm what I'm looking for. But I, I ask her to bring out an overview of processes throughout the sort of history of the medium. So, you know, we had the chance to look at that Talbot uh, salted paper print uh, and the daguerreotype and the autochrome, uh, you know, which are now away for the reasons that we've mentioned. And now if we look at what's up here, we have a variety of processes. I also wanted to mention, and I don't know if Newell may have mentioned this when she was talking to you before, but this is an unusual, a very unusual facility, Um, It's unusual in that there are very few museums like this that have a facility like this that you can actually come to. So you don't need me. You don't need uh, to have any sort of special uh, credential of any sort. Uh, You just need to be somebody interested in photography. And right in front of Newell, right where there she is, doing the uh, Carol Merrill hold it up there, Uh, Newell is showing us uh, these little quarter sheets of paper that she has over there that have uh, the hours that they're available. And um, I I always have said uh, that I think I've learned more about photography in this room than in any other single room that I've studied photography in, uh, because being able to come into this room and sit down at one of these tables with a box or two or three of photographs of photographer whose work you like, and being able to look through them uh, one image at a time, lay a couple out on the table to be able to compare them, um, and so forth and so on. And all you need to do is make an appointment. So the information about that is on the on the little sheet over there, and I, I would encourage you to do that because it's a really wonderful experience to be able to sit in here uh, with a box of images and so forth, so. Um, all right, so in language, we kind of know how syntax works, right? You know, we have uh, somewhere along the line assimilated the basic concepts of how a sentence goes together, subject, verb. You know, we need something to name, and we need something that that name thing does, right? We have to have those two things in order to convey meaning. But one of the things that we've learned over time is that the meaning of words is often changeable, and that the way in which we order those words changes the way in which we think about what those words mean. So in uh, the, the grammatical syntax of, um, oh, I don't know, like, um, you know, that person is stealing my camera versus that camera is stealing my person. Um, you know, those two, those two statements are both statements, but they mean something very different, even though they use the same set of words. And I like to think about language when I look at photographs because they are, in fact, a language. And just like any other language, and those of us who, you know, how many speak a, a language other than the one that they were born into? Um, you know, if you speak a language even sort of well, one of the things that you know is that there are only certain things you can say with the language that you have available to you. The bigger your vocabulary is, the more you're able to conjugate various verbs, the more likely you are to be able to actually affect communication in a significant way, right? So what we're looking at here is a set of linguistic, syntactic possibilities. Each photographer that we're looking at here had a set of language skills and a set of syntactical rules that applied to their ability to make images in a certain way. So let's talk about how the meaning of language changes. And I, I like to use a couple of examples. One of them is the word cool. Cool. You know, if, if uh, my grandmother, born in 1900, uh, were here, Uh, My grandmother was a woman who was always uh, uh, a little on the chilly side, and she was also the sort of person, if she was cold, you had to put on a sweater, right? Uh, So, and if she were to say, if we were to say, you know, you look cool to her, she'd go and get her little cardigan and put that on, because to her, that word cool meant that. Obviously, I can, you know, say, Kathy, that's a, that's a cool sweater you've got on. And Kathy will understand that that, that, that word cool means something different. And, so, and the interesting thing is that Kathy knows that the difference between the two sort of definitions of that word are significant. She understands them because they are part of her cultural understanding of what the syntactical rules that make that word mean something how they've worked. Another one that I that I like because I experience it every summer. I go to this place in northern Michigan, where there is a town that was established in the late 19th century called Gay, and in Gay there is a tavern, which of course is the Gay Bar, and this was a, a tavern established in the in the late 19th century, and of course you know they've sort of capitalized on their on their unusual name in the middle of northern Michigan in a sort of rural environment, but obviously. The town was a happy place to live, but we've sort of completely abandoned that meaning of the word, and now it means a whole different thing to us. So, but it took a long time. It took a long time for the word cool to change from my grandmother's understanding of what it was to, wow, that's a really cool hat, to our our understanding that it is both of those things. It's cool out today, that's a cool hat. Uh, the same with the word gay, that the word gay over time changes, but it takes time for that change to be affected. So let's now apply that to this. And if we start looking at these things, one of the things that you may have noticed as you looked at this wall of images is that they are arranged in roughly chronological fashion, right? Oldest image is on the left, newest image is on the right, and one of the things that's interesting is that what we're looking at is not simply a visual progression, but rather a progression of process and how process enabled certain photographers, and how those processes either enabled them or hindered them in certain ways. So, as an example, Uh, here's this uh, Carlton Watkins large plate image. We've talked about Watkins quite a bit. We understand where this came from, large glass plate negative, contact printed onto a piece of albumin printing paper. And we understand that in order to make that document, Watkins had to stand in that place with a camera that made a negative that big. No two ways around it. There is no way during his time period using the technology available to him to say what he wanted to say in a different way. He has to use the language, the syntax available to him at that particular time to be able to understand or to be able to create something that we would understand as this sort of grand landscape image. If we move down, oh, I don't know, down here, actually we could even go over to the to the Paul Caponegro images, it's probably the easiest way, is... To look at the idea that Caponegro may have made those with small negatives, and now he can enlarge them. He can enlarge them to however large he wants them to be. And he can enlarge them uh, that size, or bigger, or bigger still, whereas Watkins is stuck. His understanding of the language of photography is stuck in this particular time with this particular set of materials. The other thing that's interesting here is that if we were to look at, say, just this group of images that is you know, roughly between the O'Sullivan and the Le Gray and so forth and so on, uh, down to the end here, that what we're looking at are a variety of different language possibilities of expressing oneself. So when we look at uh, the Emerson image uh, is a photogravure. We talked about what that was, a high-quality ink-based photographic image. So it isn't using metallic, light-sensitive materials, at least not in the final form of the print, but it is a possibility that, as you may recall, Emerson was really interested in because of what that represented. It represented something that was very similar to traditional printmaking, and it allowed him to produce something that, to him, looked like what he wanted photography to look like. If we uh, jump down here to this Frederick Evans platinum print, I guess there must be two, there are two Frederick Evans platinum prints here, Um, that Evans is saying what he wants to say using that technology. And one of the things I hope you you, you get a chance to take a look at is how I had mentioned in class, even I think just this week, about platinum prints, that there is this sort of, uh, I do this, a tactile, a tactile quality to them, because unlike every or most of these other images that are, uh, that are here, the emulsion of a platinum print is actually contained within the fibers of the paper instead of sitting on top of it in an emulsion. So what I'm trying to point out here is that each one of these language choices is in fact stuck in time. God bless you. Is that all the way out there? Whoa, dude. There was a loud sneeze through the glass wall there. Um, So each one of these syntactic linguistic possibilities is stuck in time, stuck in time in its own time, and we've already, we've talked about this image. It might be have, uh, hopefully fun for you to see this live, kind of a cool thing. We've talked about this several times, uh, Gustave Legray's image, multiple print, combination print. And of course, one of the things that it represents is one of the first places where photographers began to explore the idea of synthetic imagery, making something that didn't exist out of component parts. So at this point, language changes. And one of the things that's really, really interesting to me is how with the words that we talked about, cool, gay, it takes this long time for the word to change, decades in some cases. And ultimately, the words change enough so that it's really easy for us to understand both sets of meanings. But with photography, syntax can change overnight. Suddenly, somebody invents a new process, or somebody thinks of a new way of using existing processes, and suddenly the way photography can communicate changes overnight. Unlike language, we have this sort of amazing set of technological imperatives that at at once limit and enable photographers. One of the things that I find really fascinating when looking at this group of images, though, and, and part of it is the sort of dialogue that Newell and I have had over the years, as we've, as I've done this uh, this this session with students, is that you may have noted that some of the processes that are on the left-hand side, the old-fashioned processes, are repeated as we go along, so that when we get down here, we're still now looking at platinum prints, platinum palladium prints. Palladium, a sort of poor cousin, poor sister of platinum. It's much cheaper uh, than platinum material. It's often used as a sort of augmented metal within a platinum emulsion to keep the cost down, but it also changes the coloration of the image uh, oftentimes to a kind of brownish color rather than uh, a more neutral color of a straight platinum print. So it sort of like serves two purposes, warming it up and also uh, keeping the emulsion at a, at a slightly lower cost uh, in terms of the, the, the overall uh, cost of the material to produce a, a print. So why is it that Roger Vail is using platinum? He's a photographer working more or less now. So he has all the language possibilities that exist. Why would he use this old-fashioned method? He likes it. He likes it, says Kathy. He just likes it. And that's it, isn't it? He likes it. He likes it in the same way that, you know, maybe a a poet may use a word that is old-fashioned to describe something because it fits the way he feels about the topic that he's writing about so the same thing here is happening over and over and over again so you know and somebody had mentioned i don't you know that obviously this is a cyanotype image we'd already just recently looked at some cyanotype images being made well what was this is so much nicer though. than the ones that <laughs> Well, this is done by somebody who's maybe done more than one cyanotype, right? So we have some cyanotype images by students on the wall. There were some, a few that were, that were nice. And, and we talked about how it was this process that was easily done. And therefore, was very popular with amateur photographers. Um, but one of the other interesting things, and and uh, you know, if we we don't have any examples from the 19th century uh, over on the left-hand side, but obviously one of the deals here is that that is this is not only a cyanotype, but also a um, photogram. Yeah,
1: photogram.
0: <laughs> photogram. You're right. You're right. It's a photogram. So the idea that that this sort of basic concept of photography that was practiced by the beginning photographers as they began to experiment with light-sensitive materials is now being co-opted, not only in terms of the color. So, you know, obviously one of the big parts of this image is its color. The color of the image is significant. One of the other interesting things about what's up here is that with the possible exception of the the embroidery that's on uh, the Betty Hahn image, everything here is monochromatic. And yet, one of the things that you'll look at when you look at this is like, you know, there isn't anything you could really call a black and white image, is there? There are warm, cool, brown, ochre, purple... Tan all of these amazing colors in monochrome images, and it, it's really one of the greatest things about being here is to be able to see that these images that we see reproduced in books or you know worse yet in some ways on the web uh, and so forth and so on, are never really. What these things look like right and and so the actual experience of these objects is is uh, you know being able to see them in this way is really significant. The other thing that 's really significant to think about is that every photograph we look at in class uh, with a few exceptions is much 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 larger on our screen than it is here, right so scale actually matters quite a lot uh, and you know, if, if uh, and in fact, you know, even just looking at this Karsh exhibition, if you've not seen Karsh photographs outside of reproduced form in books or magazines or whatever, uh, seeing some of the larger scale 11 by 14, 16 by 20 prints that are out in this exhibition um, are, are, are pretty wonderful. So it is pretty wonderful to see those things. So the point I want to make here is really that photographers have a set of possible linguistic, syntactic things that they can do. And yet, as new things, new technologies come along, you know, we talked about how Stieglitz was oftentimes cropping away sections of his negatives and enlarging only a portion of them rather than using the entire thing. So, and that's a technological enablement, right? It's just something that he can do that photographers before him either didn't want to take the time to do or didn't know how to do or uh, didn't have the right materials to be able to do. But as we now go along, we begin to see photographers who may not be using large-format cameras, maybe using small-format cameras and making enlarged images. And here is, you know, one of my uh, favorite contemporary photographers, the the Park Harrisons. It's a husband-and-wife team. And we'll look at their work uh, actually coming up a little bit in class. Um, but uh, they're sort of in some ways mimicking many of the 19th century conventions of the way photographs look, the physical look of them. And they're mimicking not only uh, sort of the the stylistic things, and we'll we'll even see some places in, in their work where they're very clearly referencing 19th century photographs by O'Sullivan and some of the other landscape photographers, but they're also mimicking the sort of qualitative look, and this is, a, I think, a photogravure image. So it's reproduced in ink, painstaking, high-quality process to reproduce something in ink that can then be reproduced multiple times uh, so that they can can, uh, happen. Another really significant thing here is that multiple times thing. We are looking at individual images that, probably exist in multiple replicas all over the world. Some of them do, some of them don't. You know, the daguerreotype that we looked at, there's one. That's it. But everything else exists at least probably in multiple replicas, sometimes two or three, sometimes two or three hundred, sometimes two or three thousand, depending on what it is and where it came from. So... The other part of photography's syntax is this: what uh, uh, William Evans, who was the curator of traditional uh, lithographs and etchings and so forth at the Metropolitan Museum, Evans called this exactly repeatable pictorial statements—the ability to exactly repeat one pictorial statement over and over and over and over again, so that it could be distributed. And in the history of art, that only happened in lithography, etching, and photography, the ability to reproduce something over and over again and distribute those images. Something else that I want to just make sure that I don't forget to mention uh, is this uh, Sally Mann photograph over here, uh, which is made with wet plate collodion and then enlarged, that wet plate collodion negative enlarged onto larger photographic printing paper. Uh, and that's what we see there. So, and, of course, Sally Mann sort of playing with the imperfections of that process as much as uh, the, the sort of high quality of the process that would have attracted Carlton Watkins. Um, and, you know, the, the thing that I find fascinating is, as we go down through this set of images, that each photographer is using the language available to them at a given time to do the thing that they want to do, But as the language grows bigger, every photographer, every successive generation of photographers has a greater sense of possibilities so that Roger Vale could have made these prints in silver gelatin. He could have made them in platinum. He could have made them in gravure. He could have made them in a variety of different ways. He could have shot them with an 8-by-10-inch view camera, as I suspect he probably did, or he could have shot them with a 35-millimeter camera and then enlarged that negative in order to make his platinum prints. So he has all of these possibilities of the way he can express himself using the languages, the language elements that are available to him at the time. Um, This uh, Adam Fuss image, I wonder what year that was, 92. So here he is making a photogrammic image by placing this child on a, Tray of some sort of liquid over a piece of photographic emulsion, shining light through it, making a photogram. But making a photogram that, unlike other photograms, has this sort of uh, sort of surprising element of motion. You know, usually photograms aren't about movement; they're about being still. Um, and then uh, this Susan Durges photograph. And I, 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 whenever I look at them, and, and um, Newell always brings one out because I just think they're They're so interesting conceptually that uh, I remember seeing the very first one of these that I saw, which was in this room with a class group. And um, uh, what Susan Durgis does is she rigs up uh, electronic flash units up in the trees and then comes back at night with a piece of photographic printing paper unrolls it underneath the surface of water and then fires the flashes through the water. So what we're looking at is a photogram of moving water using photographic materials. So if we, you know, if, if we were to have, back over here, if we were to have a photogram from NEAPS or Fox Talbot way back over here, we can see that basically the exact same pieces of technology are being used in those two end pieces. Light shining through objects that are either variously opaque or translucent or transparent and affecting light-sensitive material underneath them. But what's changed is the thought process behind what it is that is being imaged. Stopping motion, allowing motion to be part of the image, creating shadow pictures that aren't really of objects themselves, creating the illusion of depth. Whereas Niepce and Fox Talbot were probably just simply pleased to have objects where the material worked, and I was pleased actually last night that that uh, uh, John Paul referenced a number of things about history and about the history of the medium and about uh, about Fox Talbot and about Niepce and about uh, Daguerre and about how these were experiments. You know, we look at the images that they made, but we have no idea about the thousands and thousands of things that they threw away, right? You know, so when you throw away your Efforts of you know making photographs you can understand that it's you're just part of a continuum of people who have met, made a mistake you know and that's how we learn to do something new and different so mm-hmm. how she get it from wherever
1: she
0: rolls it up, puts wax. it in a dark tube sure takes it back to the dark room and processes it yeah i mean i I suppose if it if it dried out in the noonday sun or something it would be a big deal, but it's you know if she just packages it in water, you know well, What do you think? If it's all, all water? I don't know you should try it i, don't so,
2: it's just
0: interesting. It I mean I think that i think there, it's it's just it's one of those things where you just you know sort of slap your head and think. Oh, just like just the thought process of it yeah and 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 I think that's in some ways what great photography often is is just it's not the image itself, you know it's and it's what I've been sort of saying all along. the technology of photography is not that hard, it really isn't at the bottom of it, while it it may seem like swimming upstream for a, you know a, a year or six months or a week or whatever, ultimately, it's pretty simple, and it's getting simpler every day, right you know it's not that hard. Um, but it's the process of what to do with it, what to say, where to place the camera, what you're trying to convey and communicate. Um, I, I'm also intrigued uh, by the idea of using tintype. And in fact, we've looked at a couple of, I think, I think we've looked, maybe I haven't brought those in yet, but some contemporary photographers using tintype technology. Uh, and of course, one of the marvelous aspects of that image is its imperfections the little bubbles and streaks and things of that, you know, image of the bat uh, skeleton. So, uh, and obviously, it's not just about an image of a bat skeleton. It's about an image of a bat skeleton with that set of feelings based on the way it looks. So, all right. That's all I wanted to say. So, a brief, brief sort of a, of a comment. What, does anybody have any questions or thoughts or... Brick bats, throw anything at me, not at the images. Why Newell? Why Newell? You've changed.
1: I have a question about the Timothy O'Sullivan. And, and the print, from what we can see without touching it and looking it up, looks like it's been glued to or applied to that cardstock, like we've seen in some of the smaller pictures that we've. How
0: should I? Please do. I was just—I was—I was actually about to uh, to call you over. This is uh, Jim Ishka, and uh, he is. Are you, are you a conservator? Preparator. Preparator yeah. um, here at, in the photography department. So I, I'll bet you can answer that question.
2: Yeah, if, if I can open it for you. And
1: I can, uh... What I'm curious about is, and what I'm running getting at is, as a preservationist kind of a thing. I'm assuming back then everything they would have mounted the, pap- the pictures onto was acid.
2: Oh Pips. yes. Let's see how the color. Um, oh.
1: Okay. These are all. These are all from
2: albums. Um, okay. These are Sullivan and, and they would have been yeah. But they've
1: been. At, they were actually glued with some form of a glue onto that uh, album paper. Kind of, uh, I would. Assume.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you preserve it? I mean, it's it's literally adhered to something which is.
2: Well, you know the. Um, real trick is to make sure that the materials that, that come in contact with the friend That's the best we can do because there's, there's not a
0: sort of like the physician's mantra first do no harm right, right exactly right you know you don't want to you don't want to mess something up uh while trying to fix it so mm-hmm. and of course part of the part of the appeal of this particular image is not just the image itself but the fact that it is in the in the album page and that it has the text accompanying it that mm-hmm. describes it and so forth and so on so
2: I was yeah, if to you want, if you want to come
1: up. With me. Yeah. Just telling Newell's now back, so she's keeping an <laughs> <it> eagle <either laughs> eye on me. <you. laughs>
0: no, that's all right. Jim, uh, Jim volunteered.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you did, he didn't want me to come up.
1: I
0: just no, I did. I <laughs> did. I was happy to have you here.
1: So have any of these pictures been restored, like chemically...
2: Change I would
1: say,
2: to. you know, a lot of times uh, I'll just get retouched. Uh, just watch some, your back. Some retouching involved. Very, 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 very. No, most of them are pretty much as a...
1: Oh, and I'm amazed that they look Other as than manning. the matting. Well, like, there is some discoloration on the, the staircase one that I'm assuming is the egg.
2: Well, yeah. And, um, the, and the night. Yeah. The uh, album prints mm-hmm. are all... I don't
1: we yeah, don't have the once this man and what's the two camera.
2: And you can tell like when you look at here it's all shiny like eggs are, but that one's not. You're right. Um I'm not hundred percent sure. I've never I've never made I don't know much about have you have you done yeah, stuff?
0: like you know. It's a long time it was a, it was a while ago.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what the how the thirty years ago is different. making uh, and it's not as yellow. Well, the, yeah, a lot of that comes from the age, and uh, if you've ever seen a, a, a new albumin print, the album, they're not yellow; they're more purple, they're brown, and
0: brown. And it also brown. depends on how they were post-treated uh, during during the processing. Oftentimes, albumin prints were toned in gold, which gave them a kind of a rich, purpley-brown right. characteristic. And you know, are these are these uh, vintage prints?
2: This one is in very good shape. Take a look. Actually, we'll close this one up.
0: Thanks, Jim. Yeah, Jim's taking his time Are they to do
2: all this in stuff. Too?
0: Yes, we store, we store everything in the mat. Not everything. But most of them,
2: everything of a reasonable. size. Contemporary t- a photographer. Did you put the tissue between each one, too? Yeah. To keep it. We, we, we use glass seams. Um, material, um, and the reason is because it's semi-transparent. We can leaf, go through stacks of prints and see what they are, rather <coughs> than having to open oh, them. All. So it's kind of a trade-off. The glassine is slightly abrasive, more so than traditional
0: mounting but
2: you know the the
0: act of opening everything up. Right. Open. So the um, the little two. N- niblets at the top of the of the image are plate holder uh, mm. pieces yes. that would have held the glass plate into the into the holder.
1: Hmm. It's a so two little black mark. Right. Yeah. But the circular part is the lens. It's
2: the
0: vignetting from the lens. So he's raising. We well, can
1: the see the marks down here too. Try not to touch. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Don't touch. <laughs> not even trying not to touch. You're not. But this—it um, was a
1: mother's voice. It was that yeah. just yeah. don't. <laughs> this print
0: I want to keep coming back. See, <laughs> this print is on a,
2: a somewhat um, thicker stuff. Traditionally, albumin prints are very, very thin
0: stock, mm. almost a tissue. And, you know, of and are, are often uh, cracked. Right. If they're if they've not been well handled, they often have a you know they they if they've been bent even just a little bit because it's egg white it cracks and if the the paper is often very thin so unless I'm unless I'm wrong it, am I am I right about this that you and Russell and Glenn Hansen Russell Phillips Glenn Hansen were in school together Yeah, you? we were. Okay. <laughs> Cuz I know that most of these most of these folks know Glenn and Russell so um, at the ID so. They're much older than I am. <laughs> I, I was that was going to be my next sentence. <laughs> my next sentence is that they are much older well, they than they were. You. They were in, uh, they were in grad school. Honestly. And you were, yeah. you were an so undergrad was, yeah, at the Institute of, the of Design. <laughs> so, all right. Yeah. So, um, is Ru- Russell is, is there? Russell, yeah. People? Russell's uh, one of our adjunct he, guys. Yeah.
2: One of the, you're He's what? an adjunct oh, part time, okay. part time guy. Yeah. Well, they were, they were the big. Di- well.
0: Glenn, was he doing dye transfer? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Russell, of course. Is Mr. Dye Transfer. Mr. Dye Transfer. Mm-hmm. You, have, you don't have any?
2: No.
1: So do you know the provenance of all these prints? Like, you know where it's been handled, stored, or? Generally,
2: when, when we acquire something. It really does. Run but sometimes it's some, so mm-hmm. and, and quite honestly, you know, so would, some of these that. have
1: been stored for a hundred years, they've been stored somewhere, <laughs> or on somebody's wall, or Mostly,
2: that's, a, that's a lot of these in albums.
0: That statement you just made is really—I mean—it's a really significant one. That that people didn't care. Right. I mean, they didn't. Well, they didn't even maybe know to care. Mm-hmm. I think as much as anything, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Photography. So.
2: Uh,
1: Institute,
2: Institute of, of Design. Institute
0: of Design, which was
1: at it, IIT. Oh, at IIT, so it's already moved yeah, to no, IIT. Yeah. No. Yes.
0: No, the, the, not the Arden's. The Arden's, yeah, different, different school altogether.
2: Yeah. But the
0: Institute. What what once was like what that? Once was. Yeah. Do
1: they not have it because they don't think it's part of design work, or they don't have? The, I don't really know what the history they, of its they,
0: dissolution they, is, other than.
1: Potentially
2: They don't even do design anymore. Really. It's more theory of design. Huh. And,
0: uh, they kind Instead of, of actual.
2: Actual design, market research. Of design, you know, it's all beyond me. I no idea. When I talk to people I go no, <laughs> no idea. This I can understand. Design, you know, designing cup holders. I can understand. <laughs> Do you want to? Um, would you like to see anything else? Can we see this one? Yeah. I know. Oh
1: no.
0: made the carbon prints, yeah mm-hmm. <clears throat> it is
1: people that.
0: Yeah, the books. The, it's that's it's always interesting to me because it happens. It happens or has happened in my classes too. It's like they're books, you know. Look these at
2: all are, those images. These are, but these are the actual.
0: These are the actual images as opposed to, be to books. Be able to see yeah. them without having glass. Mm-hmm. Or a <laughs> Which one do you want? to Well, it's
2: between these two. <laughs>
1: Either one. Either one.
0: No. And not just one, no. right? That's the, the thing that I'm always amazed by.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness.
0: Oh. Is not just one, but, you know, many, many of them. Dozens. Through the
1: woods, and you're not pulling up the band. So it's from an album that had to have multiple... Can you imagine just the size of that book and how heavy the book would be?
0: <laughs> and when you think about that, when you literally, like, think about how many plates and the fact that they came back with anything... And then you look at how beautiful they are, and how sensitively seen they are. So many of them, you know, it's just it 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 is mind-boggling to me.
1: So the print is actually the whole thing, negative. the negative. It's like the whole yeah. thing, All and sheet. so yeah. right, it's one sheet, is what I mean. That we're looking at it's one. Yeah. Well, with the printing on it.
0: This this darker color that's in here is uh, is not is not image. So it's just, just up to where the actual image is.
1: The image is glued onto the paper. Correct. The print is, yeah, the, the print,
0: print
1: is. ends hit the,
2: this is the border of the print. And it's, it's still it's thin paper. So it's like covering it. Oh, it's it. very thin. it's yeah. so just a, a handle, frame Just to handle and to mount it like
1: that. So they have print is on a piece of paper, or is it, I mean, yes. you can't even tell. Do you have a whole collection of negatives, too? No. No. We have
2: some, but we don't collect negatives.
1: Like, are there any glass plate negatives?
2: Yeah, there's somewhere. I don't know where the Watkins are. I don't know if he still exist, but probably
1: some. Well, he lost most of them. In the oh, that's
2: right. That's, that's, that's so right. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> that's
1: right. <laughs> Which would be really hard on
0: some were when i was in graduate school at bennington college in north bennington vermont there was a, a a house called the park mccullough house it belonged to the park mccullough family and while it was being restored a huge box of carlton watkins photographs and negatives was discovered in the in the in the attic of the building and they were all of railroads uh, railroad stuff, and and uh, the Park McCulloughs had been very heavily involved in the railroad business. So, but they were there were large negatives, and I can't remember what the who the dealer was, who came up, but uh, came up from New York to, you know, evaluate them and buy them. I think so. Wet plate, wet plate, oh, colonial oh. negative an albumen print what? what time What time is it? 3:15 2:15 2:15 Not 3:15 but Why are
1: not I cuz it look like 3:15
0: That's why it Okay. So, uh one more. Thanks, Jim. I
1: love seeing you with This
0: specialized uh, You don't have anything to do? It's Fri it's Friday. Where's Anne? Oh,
1: okay. I don't know where Anne is. She was supposed to have kinda of like a
2: thinking. Yeah, that's
1: right.
2: So this is a photo of computer. Know, you just
1: never saw I never saw.
2: Yeah, they're in person, I don't think I
1: imagined I mean I know you said they were a fool.
0: Yeah, they they don't. Yeah, when you when topic. you say it's an image reproduced in ink, it doesn't really convey the sense of what it is that it looks like. So, so
1: is this the inkjet of
0: the? <laughs> 1900s? Not not really. <laughs> A little more labor intensive than the whole push-button inkjet thing. But this
1: ink was ink available at that time. Mm-hmm.
0: Like India ink.
1: I mean, what kind no, of ink like like
0: uh, like printer's ink, right?
1: Like for newspapers.
0: Yeah, the ink itself is not the special component of it. It's the the bits and pieces that come in between the negative and actually making a plate that gets inked up, which is the that's the sort of magical labor-intensive. You
1: know, describe it. What I was thinking about was these these old duplicator machines where there was this plastic film, and when you typed on it, it created a a transparency in that. It's kind of not unlike that. Then you put it on the drum and ink went through it?
0: Well, except that that, that there's like another step beyond that because once you've created this carbon paper, carbon tissue resist, that acts as something that goes onto the plate and and then is etched with acid so that the plate then is raised or lowered depending on the value of what's there. And then... More or less ink sticks to that. Simplified a little, but pretty close. Yeah.
2: The, deeper the,
0: the deeper the etching, the more the the more ink is gonna stick into that etching of the plate and therefore the more <coughs> it gets transferred to the piece of paper when it's placed in contact. So thank you. thank you, Jim. Welcome. The History of Photography Podcast is a member of the Photocast Network. Find this and other photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com, your photography resource in the potosphere.